iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. This is it, people. The last episode of season two. Yes, after today, I'm taking the rest of August off and we'll be back in mid-September with all kinds of new great guests specials, investigations. I've got a few other interesting things up my sleeve, so do stay tuned. Uh, there is a slight chance, and I say slight, because I'm about to move house. I'm leaving San Francisco and the ridiculous rents here to go across the Bay to Oakland for slightly less ridiculous rents. And so that's going to take over my life for the next few weeks as we try to move across. But if that process is not too painful and time consuming, there's a chance I might knock together a little late summer episode just to tide you over. But we shall see. I can't make any promises. Uh, and if I fall flat on that one, don't worry. I'll, like I said, I'll be back in mid-September. And one other note, one other note, stop right now. Go to Apple Podcasts and give a review. Uh, I would be forever in your debt. If you do, it helps other people find the show, uh, which in turn convinces the Sunday times to keep funding it, which in turn helps me track down interesting folks week in and week out for you, dear listener, which I really do enjoy doing. So long may it continue. Anyhow, enough of that. Let's get to today's show. Yo, technology. What is it all about? What you have to realize is that Silicon Valley was made by children. Nolan was in his early 20s when he started Atari. His protege, Steve Jobs, was 19 when he started Apple. All these young kind of rebel guys. Yeah. Everybody's having a lot of fun. So the question is, what are the relationship between that kind of wildness and creativity and innovation? This week on Danny in the Valley, we have a very special guest. And given that this is the finale of the season, I think quite appropriate. I think you guys are going to love this. So I sat down with Adam Fisher, a journalist who's been, who has just written a quite amazing book called Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley as told by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it boom. Now, as the title implies, this is an oral history, and it's pretty incredible. So Fisher talked to more than 200 people, really the founding fathers of the tech industry as we know it today, as well as various other folks uh, from the chefs and artists and secretaries who were there for the big kind of foundational moments of the last half century. He then transcribed all of those interviews and then stitched them together. And the result is, I would say, the most complete picture of Silicon Valley that you'll find. It's highly entertaining and highly informative. For me, what it does, it just lays bare 
what the valley is and what makes it tick. And if you're wondering how in 2018, we've got to this incredible spot where Apple is closing in on becoming the world's first ever trillion dollar company, while Facebook has been turned into a propaganda machine for the Kremlin. Read this book and you'll understand why. But before you do that, I thought I'd give you a sneak peek. So I hopped in the car and headed over the Golden Gate Bridge to San Rafael, where Fisher lives. Hello, Hello, sir. How are you? Good. All the way from London, mm-hmm. England. Well, I, I kind of. After a little chit-chat in the morning sun in his back garden, which was fantastic because it was about 20 degrees cooler in San Francisco and foggy, we retired to his living room where he agreed to submit himself to the five questions format, which I chose to do as a way to try to focus the conversation a bit. We ended up going all over the place, but I promise you, after this conversation, you will come away with at least three great stories to tell at a cocktail party. And what more can you ask for from a podcast? So without further ado, here's Adam. So, Adam Fisher, we're in your living room. Thank you for having us here. Thank you for coming all the way from London, England. Kind of, (laughs) via San Francisco. So, before we get into the five questions, I thought it would just be good to just get a sense of the book. What did it involve? How many people did you talk to? How did this whole thing come together? I talked to over 200 people, a lot of billionaires, definitely a lot of centimillionaires, mostly decamillionaires. Not that that matters. It's just, it's really hard to get these guys' attention. And I sat down with most of them in person and did interviews for hours and hours and sometimes days. Days. Yeah, I had a couple days with certified billionaire Jim Clark. Oh, yeah. Likewise with Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and inventor of what we know as the video game. When I was finished, I, I had about 10 million words of transcribed transcript. 10 million words. And other kind of primary. I mean, it's amazing, but knowing what going through transcripts is like, that sounds terrible. If you printed it out, it would go from here to the ceiling, and I have about a 12-foot ceiling in this room. And I had to print them out because there's no screen big enough to get 10 million words kind of all on it at once. And I literally was on my knees for a couple years cutting with scissors and taping together the little bits and pieces. The book is about 185,000 words long, and, you Mm -hmm. know, we can call that 10,000 sentences in a row. You know, that's a 500-page book. But the way I was doing it, because it was an oral history, I had to have other people say each of those 10,000 sentences, each of those 10,000 little ideas, like pearls on a string. Right. Because it's not just a collection of fun anecdotes. I mean, it's that. But it's, it's an actual story. It's an actual arc that uh, encompasses all of the modern Silicon Valley. What was the, what was the goal? I mean, why, why did you think this is a worthy endeavor? Well, I'm passionate about it. Number one, I grew up in Silicon Valley hearing these stories, and I wanted to tell the stories of Silicon Valley as Silicon Valley told it. And I also, frankly, wanted, wanted to get a journalist's point of view out of, out of the way. Like, I don't think 
anybody's interested in Adam Fisher's Silicon Valley. I'm not even interested in my Silicon Valley. I'm interested in the history of Silicon Valley as the people who built Silicon Valley understand it. On the internet, there's a million people, probably nine billion people with an opinion. I wanted to get away from that. I wanted to get to the source opinions that really mattered. Because if you're going to understand Silicon Valley, you need to at least know how Silicon Valley understands Silicon right. Valley. Uh, that leads perfectly to my first question. Yes, which sir. Which is, who was Nolan Bushnell and why was he so important? Nolan Bushnell invented the video game, really. I don't think it's controversial to look at video games as a great American art form, like jazz or movies or what have you. And Nolan is unquestionably the guy who founded it as kind of a, a viable business. He was the first guy to take a video game and put a quarter on it and say, this is a piece right. of entertainment. This is a piece of mass media. And so he's most famous for the first video game that his company, Atari, put out called Pong, which oh, I Pong. think a yes. lot of people have heard of. If you're unfamiliar with Pong... Which may be a lot of our millennial re uh, listeners right now. It's a ball and paddle game. It's incredibly primitive. 1972. Two. And by 1978 or so, Atari, one single Silicon Valley company, was making more money than all of Hollywood's studios combined. That's uh, a fact. Uh, Yes, Atari was, you know, the, one of the largest employers in the Valley. And even more importantly for the history of Silicon Valley and our culture generally today, the culture that's bigger than video games, he was the first t-shirt tycoon, young CEO selling something to consumers. And he was a kind of wild, young rebel. And yeah. that was how he styled himself, a well, there's disruptor. A, there, there's a girl, so many good um, anecdotes in the book, but one uh, I was reading yes, last night was when they, they were running out of money in the early days and they sold to, I think it was Warner. Yes. And then the corporate types come in from New York and they meet this new CEO that they've just paid $30 million for his company or whatever it was. And he's wearing a t-shirt that says, I love to f Yes. And apparently that's <laughs> just a slander by Ray Kassar, who's unfortunately dead. Um, oh, really? Nolan and all the actual employees at Atari, I recently learned, deny this. You know, what they say about Ray Kassar, the guy who came in from Warner, was like, yeah, he would like land his helicopter in the parking lot and he had a private dining room. This was totally alien to the Atari culture. It was, um, which was egalitarian, almost proto-feminist. Atari under Nolan was for the ERA, was the first Silicon Valley company to give shares to secretaries, that kind oh, of really? thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Because when everybody thinks of, at least people outside the Valley think of Silicon Valley, I think of course Steve Jobs. Yeah. So why was Nolan such a foundational character? You know, before Nolan Bushnell, it was guys in pocket protectors and button-up shirts. Definitely short sleeves. Um, you know, clock in at nine, go home at five, working for the... They were defense contractors, basically. They were selling chips to the military for putting in the nose cone of, of ICBMs or missiles or rockets. A whole different culture moved in. And it's the culture that we still 
see today of like the young CEO, the disruptor, the break things, the kind move of fast, move, move fast, fast and, and break, break things. things. Yeah. Pardon me. So he was the uh, he was kind of the archetype of that. He's the archetype, and and it's no coincidence that employee number nineteen at Atari was this pipsqueak named Steve Jobs. Right. And Steve Jobs and actually Nolan Bushnell became friends. Steve Jobs kind of collected older male mentors throughout his life, perhaps because he was adopted or perhaps because he was just very smart. Right. (laughs) Um, And you can read Steve Jobs' entire career as either him copying uh, Nolan Bushnell or looking at what Nolan got wrong. So that's why Nolan's important, you know? And I think ultimately he may be the most important modern figure because he didn't... Steve Jobs created the PC, which changed our world, and then again with the iPhone, you know. But he didn't create, you know, something that will be remembered as culturally important as the novel or the movie. And that's what video games will be seen as. Yeah, I was just... uh, We did a thing on eSports, and I went and saw the Overwatch League launch. They just sold out Barclays Arena in Brooklyn, 20,000 people. Yeah. It's incredible. It all goes back to Nolan. And when you say they were making that one company, Atari, which I had, a 2600, Donkey Kong, etc. They were making more money than all the Hollywood studios combined. Like, how much money was that then? Because we just had Apple's earnings this week, $55 billion in turnover. Biggest company in the history of ever. A couple hundred million or something like that. I don't know. All these stories are in the book. Yeah. Um, Which you all should buy and read. Of course. It is. It's, I'll say as a journalist, it's an an amazing feat that you pulled (laughs) off. Seriously. It almost killed me. But I'm glad I did it because I get these emails from my heroes being like, great job, Adam. Right. How'd you do that? Right. The discussion of Nolan leads perfectly to my second question. So here we are today, 2018, and all the craziness that's happening with Facebook, social media, et cetera. Yeah. It'd be good to get a sense of the culture and the beginnings of this. How did kind of LSD, hippie, libertarian, kind of this whole soup of ideas, how did it lead to where we are today? That's 500 pages. Yeah. Fun. (laughs) Fun. Uh, Well, look. What you have to realize is that Silicon Valley was made by children. Nolan was in his early 20s when he started Atari. His protege, Steve Jobs, was 19 when he started Apple. And I can go on and on. When Zuckerberg was whatever, 18. He was 19 when he coded up Facebook and Twitter, all these young kind of rebel guys. Yeah. Google, a couple young 20-somethings founded that company, you know. And they were around for four or five years as Backrub and Google.edu at Stanford before they were even a company. Everybody's having a lot of fun. So the question is, what is the relationship between that kind of wildness and creativity and innovation? I think this a lot of this wildness comes from the culture of Northern California for the last 50 years or longer, really. And the culture of Northern California and the San Francisco Bay Area is the counterculture, okay? The dominant culture is the counterculture. The hippies were ascendant. The drug culture was the culture. LSD comes 
up over and over again in these stories. And I, I was not looking for it. Yeah. Um, same with The Grateful Dead. I did not listen to The Grateful Dead, but The Grateful Dead shows up over and over in these these stories. It's it's baked into the Silicon Valley culture. You still see it. It's kind of I don't know hippie slash libertarian. That's that is the kind of the um, in the bloodstream. So yeah. you mentioned hippie slash libertarian. I immediately think Stuart Brand, who I'm sure no one here knows who he is listening. But he's the guy who first put the phrase personal computer into print. In what, when was that? Do you remember? 72 or 3. Right. He was the first guy to use the phrase hacker in its modern incarnation. First guy I know of, certainly. He's created the first important kind of social media uh, network, something called The Well, where the phrases cyberspace was first used in its modern meeting, where the first where the first use of the word flame was used in its modern meaning, i.e. he flamed me uh, over email. And these are just side projects of his main project. The Whole Earth Catalog. The Whole Earth Catalog. He, you know, the, this is the guy who got the first picture of the whole earth and put it on a book. And, and he, that, he lives on like a houseboat in Marin, right? That's right. And he start, and that whole Earth catalog started the modern environmental movement. It catalyzed the back to the land movement of, of the hippies when they all fled the cities, went to be organic farmers. Um, and oh, by the way, he was probably the person most responsible for getting acid out of the labs of universities and these psychology departments where it was being used to mimic psychosis. Right. And into the, the mouths and heads of hippies. He was the guy who actually organized the TRIPS festivals, the acid tests, as they were called in the late 60s. He organized the acid tests. He was like the responsible guy, the responsible Mary Prankster who actually right. could get things done. And, and the Whole Earth Catalog for jobs, for example, was like his Bible, no? We open the book with an epigram. Stay hungry, stay foolish. It says... Steve Jobs quoting Stuart Brand. When people think of that quote, they think of Steve Jobs. Yeah, and but yeah. he was actually quoting, and he says it because it was in yeah. his commencement yeah, yeah, yeah. speech at Stanford, the famous one. Thinking about all of these founding stories of all these kind of foundational companies here, there always seems to be the other guy. Yeah. I mean, that just seems that no matter whether you're talking about Google... Yes. ...or Facebook or anything, there's always... The third guy or, you know, the fifth beetle, whatever you want to call him, who's kind of either actively or just the way the myth-making happens, he gets, he gets lost. This is God's gift to journalists. Because if you can figure out who that other guy or possibly a gal is, you got the story. But my favorite other guy is Scott Hassan, the barely acknowledged third founder of Google. He was there back when they were grad students messing around in the computer science department at Stanford. But in fact, he's not the, the third founder. He was <laughs> building Google with Larry Page, or what would become Google, before Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, got interested. And there's a wonderful anecdote, which you can read in its entirety in the book, where 
Scott Hassan says, "Yeah, I was I was you know working as kind of a programmer." At and he was a Stanford. he was like at the TA right, a teacher's yeah. assistant at Stanford. Yeah, he was hired. Now he's really smart, you know, because or really clever. He wasn't you know smart enough to test into the world's best computer science department. He just said, "Oh, I'll just get a job there because the CS department hired programmers to." help PhD students get their work done. Right. But once you're in, no one really knows what you're doing. What you're doing. You're just there at all the classes and all the parties right. and, and making friends. And he made friends with Larry Page and Sergey Brin because they were fun. He tells this wonderful story of watching Sergey Brin try to build what's called a spider. That's the type of program that downloads the internet. And at that point, you could download the entire internet on a stack of computers in your dorm room. And the reason Paige was doing that is because he wanted to get a PhD by studying the internet. So he built this spider, and Hassan just thinks it's the stupidest piece of code he's ever seen. It downloads the internet, but slower than the internet itself is being created. So by definition, it will never finish. And Larry will never even be able to start his PhD. So just as an exploit, as like a prank, really, he breaks in to Larry's office in the CS department at Stanford and just over the weekend throws out the old code and writes a new code in an entirely different language. And it is on the order of magnitude, you know, 10,000 times faster, something like that. Right. You know, it works. And then Larry comes back and checks his kind of his program over the weekend and realizes that, you know, it's 10,000 times faster. <laughs> and, you know, doesn't actually even say thank you to Scott. Just says, hey, you know, like, here's some bugs and get cracking, Scott. And right. Scott just like shakes his head and says, okay. And then later, you know, after Sergey gets involved and they they do their PhD research and they get the kind of foundational IP that underpins Google now, something called PageRank, the thing that sorts yeah. the unsorted web into to something that's searchable. He says, oh, let's make a search engine. This is Scott Hassan. Oh, let's make a search engine. Larry's like, ah, oh, that's not research. That's too hard. Sergey's kind of the same way. But he says, no, no, I know how to do it. We can do it. And then he uh, convinces Sergey to help him. And then over the period of several weeks, they build the first right. Google search engine. Yeah, they built it at like between the hours of like 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. or something, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. They had to essentially build it in secret. Because it was not their job or not their research. It's not research because there were other search engines at the time. So the CS department was like, if it's not research, it's not your job, Scott. But right. he was just enthused. And so what happened to him? Did he just decide, oh, okay, I've done my work is done here. I'm off. I'm well, he saw the internet boom because this was the late 90s. And, you know, as he puts it, like, Sergey and Larry were just trying to impress their mothers by insisting on getting a PhD. This is, these are quotes in the right, book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so he was like, forget this. I'm going to go make some money on this, like, web boom that's happening. And he did. In 18 months, he made, like, $30 million on a on a it's basically a search engine for email that became e-groups right and in, and anyway and he was essentially given a tip by uh sergey and uh larry he was given part of google when google finally incorporated uh 
some years later. Wow. Yeah, because I actually came across him, and he wouldn't return my calls, sadly. But we did a thing on robots, and he's very big in the robotics world. He uh, he took his money and, and put together an R&D Willow shop, Garage. Willow Garage, which basically built an operating system, a free operating system for robots, like a Linux for robots, and he gave it away for free. Everybody in the robotics community uses it now. It's like it's an, an yeah. epical step forward. Um, so he's another guy that's had a couple of these epical yeah. things. And the reason he's building robots is because he wants to go to Mars. Like this guy is the most Silicon Valley guy of all the Silicon Valley guys interviewed. And why does he want to go to Mars? A real uh, estate <laughs> play. He wants to pre-sell the entire planet. Is that, to is fund. that real? Is that that a, is real. That's incredible. Yeah. So he's like into Martian real estate. That's that's where he thinks the money is. And this guy has seems to have known where the money is the whole time. Right. Like, I mean, he's totally nerdy, as you might expect. Yeah. But I really like him. Um, he was hard to get to know. Yeah. Well, everybody who I talked to for that robots piece said. You know, you can try, but he, you won't get to him. That's what I got to, but yeah. I, I, I managed to get to him because I showed him some cool robots. He decided to talk to me. <laughs> um, are there any other kind of other guys out there that have been kind of lost to history? I mean, there's one guy who clearly has not landed on his feet, Captain Crunch. Who the hell is Captain Crunch? And why is his name Captain Crunch? He was Waz's hero as a teenager. Okay. Captain Crunch was um, a hacker before there was such thing as hackers, before there were personal computers. He did not hack on personal computers. He hacked on the world's all-encompassing global network called the phone company, AT&T. <laughs> right, right. And he was a guy who discovered if you took a, a free bosun's whistle that came in as kind of a free toy in captain crunch the breakfast cereal mm -hmm. and you blowed through it yeah into a phone that the computer on the other side would assume you were an operator and give you all the privileges that an operator has so the the prize in captain crunch cereal helped him hack at&t yeah just by coincidence, did a tone that was exactly 2,600 right. megahertz, or maybe hertz. And uh, that is, coincidentally, the key tone that unlocks superpowers, op right. operator superpowers, in the computer system that we call the phone network. He could use that to do all kinds of things. And he tells a story where he used that to call President Nixon on a private line, on a, like a military red phone right. kind of line. And he got through to Nixon, woke him up. And Nixon's like, what's going on? And Captain Crunch tells this great story. Oh, there's a crisis. What kind of crisis? There's a toilet paper crisis, Mr. President. We've run out of toilet paper. <laughs> Send some over. So he was making crank calls to the president in the late Using 60s. his Captain Crunch yeah. uh, toy whistle. Yes. And Waz was inspired by this because Waz is a prankster. Waz had his own joke line 
that told only Polish jokes, okay? Well, um, like, a tele- we, like a phone line you'd call A in. phone line, 1-800, like, you know, Polish joke. And it was Waz joking about, of course, himself. And it was a nationally famous, you know, um, when he was a teenager. And, and so Waz was into jokes and pranks and phones. Right. And so Captain Crunch was his hero. Captain Crunch, you know, was an electronic engineer. He didn't just blow this whistle. He yeah. built this thing called the Blue Box, uh, which automated the process of hacking into the the phone system. And then um, Waz, inspired by that, did a digital blue box. That blue box, Jobs saw and said, hey, let's sell it. And that was the first kind of team where right. Waz was the engineer and Jobs was the product guy. The product guy. And they, and they had a little business selling these very illegal pieces of electronics. That model is what they did for Apple as well. So what happened to Captain Crunch? Well, Captain Crunch is crazy. It's a sad story. He's impoverished. He lives uh, in Vegas, one step above kind of homelessness. Really? Before that, actually, he was in the rave scene. I don't know if you knew that. So he, oh, wow. he, was, a, he was like one of the first kind of like raver Ravers. guys. So heavily involved in the drug world as well. Captain Crunch is an odd, odd cat. You know, most of his problems were of his own making. Right. He is way out on the autistic spectrum. And did he was he involved with Apple in the early days? Yeah, he was. He did the first. Um, he did Easy Writer, which was uh, one of the first uh, word processing programs, or certainly the first for the Ma- the uh, Apple II. And he actually did it while he was in jail. I'm sorry. Yes. He was arrested for breaking into the phone system and went to jail, writing by hand the code in jail and handing it off to the folks at Apple who would type it in and, and run it. So, he, yeah, he's, he's infamous in wow. Apple lore. And really, you could look at him as like the first real hacker. But right. he's such a sad figure, you wouldn't want to hold him up right. for right. anything. Like, he's no role model. Right. And so that actually leads to uh, my next question, question four, which would be, how important is, for lack of a better word, stealing or imitating or copying here? Because it feels like every big idea that kind of makes it has been, in some way, been purloined or is just an imitation of something that came before. Yeah. Well, this is the nature of creativity, I think. We, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. The quote that Jobs used to say is, good artists copy great art is steel. Right. In art or programming, which all the guys, at least in the 70s and 80s, thought of as a kind of art, has a history. There's kind of an art history, you know, and people take ideas and make them new. But the, if you really want to break through, you got to make them so new that people don't recognize it as an old idea. Since we're talking about jobs, let's talk about the iPhone. You know, the iPhone, as it turns out, was based on something called the General Magic Communicator. There was a company, a spin-out of Apple, that took the hero programmers behind the Macintosh, Bill Atkinson and um, Andy Hertzfeld. They founded a company, General Magic, and the idea was to take the Macintosh and squeeze it down into something you could put in your pocket. They worked on this thing for years, and by the end, they had created a phone which had an 
on-screen keyboard, an app store, text messages. This is before the text messaging protocol was invented. Emojis and games. This is 99. No, this is 95. So 95, 95. they have a phone with a keyboard on the screen. Yeah. Emojis, text messages, and an app store. Yeah. Was this thing like 20 grand a pop or something? (laughs) I mean, yeah. Yeah, they they sold a the a version of this. This, this is the pre, prior version. The CEO of they knew they were in trouble. It was supposed to be you know email for Joe. It was supposed to be for Joe Sixpack for the masses. Yeah. But the Joe Sixpack didn't even know what email was at that point. Much less that they wanted a smartphone. Okay. Yeah. They sold a couple thousand their first day, and they had the logs of who bought them. The CEO tells the story about looking through those logs and realizes he knows everybody. Who's bought it? Who bought it? No one else did. And the whole company collapsed. But Steve Jobs was one of those guys who bought one. It is probably no coincidence that the first, the screen resolution of the first iPhone is the exact same screen resolution as that prototype. General from 95 from 95 so wow and so when you look at the history you realize that there's all these echoes you know yeah um, we talk about the well which Stuart brand well that's what i was gonna say like facebook obviously was not the first social network no it was kind of the last social network but they had the best business model and the best way of scaling and what's so funny i was uh reading about the chapter on the early days of facebook yeah which is really revelatory in that um it, because I was thinking about Zuckerberg sitting in front of Congress, fending off questions, et cetera. Sure. And those early days, it was sounded like it was a combination of like a kind of a keg parties, the hackathon all night long, and like all he wanted to do was quote unquote dominate, dominate, dominate. <laughs> this is his catchphrase, apparently. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's well established. Um, the anecdote in that story that I love the most was the beer box. The robot that they built. Ah, oh, yeah. The beer bot is amazing. It's amazing. So here these guys, you know, they're supposed to be making a social network, right? And they got a little seed funding, right? And what do they spend their time doing? Making a beer bot. This was a, a keg that was intelligent. It could tell who came to it and poured themselves a beer. Because it was a keg, a beer keg with a camera on it. Yes. And uh, some kind of recognition system. Yeah. And then uh, it would it would know that who poured themselves a beer and then kind of... Send a message. Send a message to everybody else at work and say, so-and-so is having a beer, you know, join them. You know, that is just basically tells you what the working environment was like. I mean, it seems like if you just look at the stories that they were mo- that they built the whole thing mostly drunk. And by the way, they also built it in their pajamas. People would come to work... The first female engineer tells the story. is like, oh, yeah, I'd always come to work, you know, usually around noon in my PJs. Yeah. And then they'd stay till they all stay. hours yeah. in the night and just do it over and over. And the drinking started just, you know, at five, you know. Oh, what's also interesting about the keg is the keg, it was patented, apparently. Right. That's the other thing that I was just kind of, it was, you put it in there in passing, but like there's a patent for the beer bot. Yeah, I have yet to find the patent for the beer bot, but. But I'm told there's a patent for the beer bot. And then I'm also told that uh, this is actually the beginnings of their kind of facial recognition technology that underpowers, like, their photos. So, like, when you upload a photo of your friends and then Facebook is like, oh, that's, you know, Ben. 
it all comes from this, the this beer bot. Beer bot, I am told. Anyway, it's these incredible. stories are in the book. Yeah, it's great. I have a, the the beer bot was uh, that's a gem. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Facebook does. Let's just be clear. Facebook does need to kind of grow up and and get past its kind of frat boy past. Well, yeah, that I guess that was what really struck me is I mean it's only a thirteen year old company or whatever it is. Fourteen. Fourteen. And it is fourteen years old if you look at kind of the behavior. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a belated like, oh, a quarter of the planet uses this thing we kind of thought was really cool and made us a bunch of money. Maybe we should be more grown up about how we govern it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the next book. The next book. Yeah. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Question five, coming from the UK. Yes, sir. Well, actually, sorry, coming from here, living in the UK for many years. I don't know how many stories I've read about. We're going to create the next Silicon Valley in London in Singapore, in Dubai, in Boston, New York, wherever. But what comes out in the book is that there seems to be a confluence of factors that have created this place. And I guess my question is, do you think it's actually possible to replicate this place as pretty much every city in the world would like to, is trying to do in some shame, shape or fashion? I actually think the answer is yes. I think in the future there'll be many, many, many Silicon Valleys. We here in Silicon Valley proper will kind of be first among equals because kind of I think the money will, the real big money will will come here first and then be distributed. Right. But I believe there'll be other Silicon Valleys based on other technologies, like an AI Silicon Valley, maybe in China, and a blockchain Silicon Valley, maybe in Russia. Right. Uh, And in fact, we are already seeing that. Shenzhen where the iPhone is actually built in China, is actually kind of like a, a high-tech manufacturing Silicon Valley with all these tiny companies always popping up and going, and going broke and an incredible unmatched ability to like take a, a blueprint, a spec, and turn it into a real thing like at volume, at scale, right. overnight. Whether you can actually engineer a silicon valley through kind of <laughs> a 
a, a municipal or, yeah. or, or federal planning process. You know, I'm not a libertarian, but I have my doubts. Yeah. yeah. I think these things are bottom up. I think they're organic. And really, you just need to get the freedoms in place. One of the things that was interesting that came across in the book is this idea again and again that Silicon Valley is a, it's this collection of companies and engineers and people and you know lots of smart people in one place, but this idea that it is effectively one company. No one who is literate in the modern sense, meaning can code, is ever out of a job in Silicon Valley. They don't even see it as particularly competitive. Because they kind of see it, and I had multiple people describe Silicon Valley to me like this, as kind of, they see Silicon Valley as kind of one big company with separate divisions, one's maybe Facebook, one's Google, one's Apple, but one big company that no one really runs. They just kind of shuttle back and forth to wherever they're needed most. You know, these are all technologists, but especially the upper app. Or whatever's most interesting. And, or whatever's most interesting. Or whatever they think is, is needed, frankly. Because these guys don't need to make any more money. They're doing it for fun after you make your first... If you have a couple million in the bank, I, you know, I don't think it matters. They yeah. want to keep working. So they do the fun thing, the thing they think that is really going to make the most impact. And, and for good, because these guys are, are smart. No one's evil that I met. now. Which runs counter to the whole image that's circulating at the moment. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Like, when I started this book, no one could do anything wrong in Silicon Valley. When did you start it? 2013. Okay. And now that I finished this book, like, the pitchforks are out. Okay? So this is just the, the typical media cycle that we see for all stories. It doesn't mean it's the wrong the, the wrong thing, and I think it's a good corrective to the, the valorization and worship of people who basically have made a huge piles of money by mistake, okay? The one large company thing is really true, and, and you, you kind of see it in the book, too, because even there's 30 chapters, and each one is essentially a different kind of founding moment, usually a company, but not always. But the names, the names are the same as you go through. There's yeah, they just propagate. They just kind of, as they, I think someone put it, it's like Silicon Valley is one company, and then you're just kind of jumping from one division to another. Yeah, and it's like it's like 50 people made everything that matters. And that's hyperbole, of course. But yeah. it's also kind of true, you know? Like, yeah. you know, the same names show up over and over and over in different companies. And there's a real system that's created in Silicon Valley where the old guard mentors the new. Nolan Bushnell mentors Steve Jobs, who mentors Andy Hertzfeld, who mentors Tony Fidel. And you see it. You can just see how that system works. And again, it's a culture, culture of passing it forward. And, and not dismissing any ideas too outlandish. Because I was reading, I was thinking about the Google thing, the early days, and they were really interested in this idea of a space tether. The space tether, another early Google story that really, it seems like a minor thing until you realize it's just the key to understanding Larry Page and Sergey Brin, so? and even Scott Hassan with his Martian real yeah. estate. How, how does that help us understand Google? I guess it shows that these guys are really, at heart, inventors, uh, makers, and that's really why I still... Could you just explain what the space tether idea oh, was? Oh, God. Okay, space tether. <laughs> tether uh, it's basically Jack and the Beanstalk, okay? Yeah. So 
what you do is you put up a satellite in geostationary orbit. That means it's going around the Earth exactly as fast as the Earth is itself. So effectively, it stays in the same place. Rotating. So you always look up, and it's always right above you. And then you put a little factory on there, and you, you start making cable. And after you make about a thousand miles of it, I believe, I'm not sure yeah. what geostationary is, you would hit the ground. Okay. And at that point, you have a rope from the ground to space or a cable. And then you just build an elevator that can crawl up it. And then you can put as much stuff you want into orbit very cheaply. You don't have to um, burn, you know, 100,000 gallons of kerosene to get out out of the get, atmosphere yeah get to orbit you can just i mean you could maybe solar power it up there you know it depends yeah. how slowly you want to crawl up this this space tether so it is one it is a and they were serious idea. about that they were they were serious about it they actually there was a kind of tiger team within google that looked at the feasibility i believe that they said not yet you know we still the material science isn't there yeah. but they looked at it as a project it is kind of the key to understanding Google. You know, why do they spend all this money that they could be returning to shareholders or on flying cars on and flying cars and self-driving cars and all these things that that they that actually did pass the feasibility studies. And that's why and it really speaks to what is different and what is special about Silicon Valley. Why is Silicon Valley interesting culturally where, you know, Wall Street, a much bigger industry, is, is it bigger it, anymore? Financially? The financial industry is way bigger than the tech right. industry. The tech industry is trying to change that. Yes. They're literally attacking the financial industry, yeah. Bitcoin and blockchain, etc. But still, way like, I think, 10x. Yeah. So why didn't I write a book about, you know, the financial industry and the cultural the stories there? It's because there's really nothing at the base of the financial industry. People there are interested in making a deal. It's transacting. They're transacting. Yeah. They're, and they're making a VIG. They're essentially parasites on moving money around. Whereas in Silicon Valley, there are certainly those people, those kind of parasitic people. They're the, the venture capitalists, the money men. Um, I mean, they're needed, so I'm not yeah. sure they're parasites. The, the people are interested in transaction and making a deal. But it's all at the base of it are people who are actually making things, inventing things, creators, makers. These people actually look at themselves often as kind of artists, and they definitely see themselves as creators. And that's where the real culture is. That's really where the good is. And that's what I was trying to get at. Right. That is core thing that distinguishes silicon valley from these other do you think it's being diluted just given the amount of money that is it's absolutely being diluted you know we've got softbank from japan is it a hundred billion dollars it's a hundred billion dollars yes you know that is like a hundred x times any other vc firm like the money it's not just people in silicon valley giving putting money down on their their old intern with his or her new idea, which is what it used to be, yeah. really. It is sovereign wealth funds, governments, businesses that are bigger than governments on a kind of just yeah. GDP level, throwing huge 
huge amounts of money at Silicon Valley, and it is corrupting the whole process. Absolutely. It, that is the source of this dysfunction that we see coming out of Silicon Valley today, full stop. And my point, if I wanted to end with anything, mm-hmm. is that is not the culture of Silicon Valley. That is an MBA culture. That is maybe a Wall Street culture. That is a money culture that is, that is threatening to swamp uh, what is a really an authentic, bottom-up, beautiful kind of maker culture that that needs to be remembered, and which is why I wrote the book. Right. L- one last yes, sir. question. This is like a bonus question. Of all of your 10 million, 10 million words stacked to the ceiling, is there like one story that is your favorite <laughs> that came out of there? That, Choosing, that kinda, I can't really choose my like, baby. Oh, yes, but yes. Children. Yeah, okay. It's the story about Steve Jobs taking a massive hit of LSD to die. Is that true? You'll have to read the book to find out. I like that. Wow, you're, this is like good marketing. This is perfect. There's like a to be continued dot, 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 the cliffhanger. Now we have to, now everybody has to go out and read the book. That's right. I love it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Adam for letting us in his house. Uh, when I say us, I also had with me Ben, recent university grad over from the UK. He's uh, been doing a week of work experience here, uh, following me around just to see how the journalism sausage gets made. Hopefully I haven't put him off. But you know what they say about eating sausage once you see how it gets made. But hey-ho. Um, I also want to thank um, Adam for the coffee. He made us a bunch of coffee, but we didn't drink any of it because we just got to talking. But I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I know I certainly did. And yeah, you came away with it with a bit of a, I don't know, clear understanding of uh, this crazy place called Silicon Valley. And that is it. As I said, for this season, I'm off for about six weeks. Please enjoy the rest of your summer. I endeavor to do the same. Hopefully I don't throw my back out lifting boxes in the move. And if not before, we'll talk to you in mid-September. But all that said, just before I go, I'm still going to be writing in the newspaper. So just a podcast break. So if you still want your dose of what's happening out here from the Sunday Times, you can go to the paper. You can go online at thetimes.co.uk. And I'll still be on the Twitter machine at Danny Fortson. And any ideas, please email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Enjoy your summer. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.